Hi, I'm Anthony Taylor, and welcome to season two of the Mental Fitness Podcast, the podcast where you're going to hear from a fantastic range of people about their personal stories and ideas on how to live a great life and look after your mental fitness while doing it. You're going to learn about resilience, emotional intelligence, how to identify our strengths, and what we can do to support our good mental health. Here's a snapshot of what we've got in store for you this week. It was time to let go of an awful lot of things. And that was really about making positive choices about who I want to be, what my self-image should be, how now I should update some of the uh, thinking that I have, and actually more importantly, how do you stop your bias bazooka going off from your past every time you're faced with something where your brain naturally wants to draw up a past experience, positive or negative, to influence the way you're about to think about the situation in the present. So I'm really excited to be bringing you series two, and I hope you join us throughout the entirety of this. And as ever, if you like the podcast, please give us a like, Uh, I'll subscribe to the show as well. It takes just a minute, but it's going to help the podcast reach more people. Okay, let's crack on with the show. Today on my conversation, I'm talking to Phil Jones. Phil is the chief executive of Brother UK, which he has been since 2013, I believe. Um, He is also a much sought after keynote speaker and he is also uh, part of the Manchester Growth uh, company is that right, Phil? That's right. Yes, I sit as an advisor there, and he's held a, a number of other positions that I won't sort of go all the way through for a number of years. But Phil is really well known in the Northwest community, uh, at the very least, I'm sure nationally as well, um, for for how he's run brother and his leadership style and his thoughts and opinions around that. So I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today, Phil. Welcome. Anthony, thank you very much indeed for uh, for having me on. And for anyone that's listening today, thanks for uh, thanks for coming along. Phil, I'm going to start off our conversation as I do, as listeners will will know, um, with the same question for all my guests, which is, what does the term mental fitness mean to you? Big topic, big question. But I, I guess for me as an individual, it's all about uh, knowing your strengths and knowing your vulnerabilities as well uh, to help you succeed in almost every area of your life, whether that be your personal life or indeed your professional life. And, and I think you can help to build that by just having a wide range of skills and competencies, mostly built around sort of introspection and also your ability to cope with challenge when it, uh, when it appears in your life. We really like that. You touched on a couple of things there in terms of the strengths and the vulnerabilities. And I really like the introspection bit. I've sort of come up with a model of what mental fitness means to you over the last few years, 10 years of working in this area. And I don't think it's perfect and no model is, but for me, in, in my model, I've got mental toughness, which talks about that, that resilience bit I think you were just talking about. We've got mental health awareness. We've got personal energy management, how we manage our energy levels across those domains and, and that emotional intelligence, so that self-awareness introspection bit. So it kind of fits. It seems like I'm on the, on the, we're on a similar wavelength when it comes to that term of mental fitness. Um, and the other bit for me in the center of my model is around character strength. So that sort of values and, and knowing ourselves and those values bits. So good to know. I think we're on the sort of same page around that. Um, how important is that when it comes to leadership? And, and by leadership, I don't just mean, you know, people have achieved your lofty heights in terms of chief executives, but leadership at every level. Oh, gosh, it, it, it's vitally important. I think we can we can lead ourselves better in any life, uh, regardless of what you do or what position that you hold. And I think some galvanizing moments for for me have been when you really work hard to try and better understand who you are and what you stand for. That is, you're very clear about kind of your vision, your mission, your values and your principles in life, what what I call your ding. And I got that from when I heard, you know, about Steve Jobs saying about you know, what 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 was his leave behind? He said, I want to leave a little dent in the universe. And I thought, my goodness, what an incredible, inspiring kind of um, output for a life. And if you looked at it, I guess, of everything he achieved with uh, with the development of Apple in terms of the products, you could definitely probably argue that he did leave a little dent in the universe. And when I heard that, I, I thought, you know what, I, I would really like to kind of get clear about who I am and 
why I'm here and actually what I stand for. And when you understand what you stand for, you understand by definition what, what you don't stand for. So you, you get a clear idea of what you are by knowing what you're not. So, so once you started to code all of those things, it was a very galvanizing thing for me as an individual to sort of have that real sense of uh, inner strength and purpose. My sort of my lighthouse, my sort of my moment of congruency where, where I know kind of the things I naturally want to give my energy to, the things that naturally take away from my sort of my true north, if you like. And that allows me to inform everything about the way that I run my life, what I give my time to, my energy to, my resources to, you know, how I value relationships, you know, whether I say yes or no to a speaking event, all of these different things, personal or professional. If you really get this sort of uh, deep understanding of who you are as a person, I think it really, really informs you about your generalized direction and decision making in all areas of your life, regardless of your career or position or, or where you sit uh, anywhere on the cultural scale. It's great to hear you so talk so passionately about that. And I love that you reframed it that kind of ding. We tend to think of dings as something annoying in the car door, don't we, when you get someone's clanged into it in the supermarket. But I really, that, that dent in the universe bit. And you said taking that time to under, really understand yourself and your purpose. Have you able to find and articulate your purpose in, in one sort of short sentence? And is that something, if you have, you'd be willing to share or? Yes, it, it, it's to un- uncover the potential in millions of others. I love that, to uncover the potential in millions of others. I think when you create these types of things, it, it's all about almost never being able to achieve the goal fundamentally, Anthony. It's sort of continuing to always to move towards a generalised direction of travel in your future, which is not so clearly defined. You know, it's, it's just got to be a bright star somewhere that you know that you're always navigating towards. And for me, that just simply means um, whether it be an individual conversation or speaking on a stage to hundreds or doing you know, a Zoom call with thousands, um, understanding why you're doing it um, really helps you to kind of make sure that you're saying yes to the right things. Because sometimes I, I get lots of people asking me to coach them one to one, for example, and sometimes that um, can be very difficult. But I, I would say yes, for example, if it would be a chief executive running an organization with hundreds of people in it, because I know that changing the way that chief executive might work can mean that they would change the outcomes for hundreds of people in their organization, for example, uh, or if somebody's in the uh, the third sector or something like that, you know that, that having somebody who can make an, an impact and an influence in lots of other people, I tend to focus my efforts there now. But occasionally, you know, I do come across an individual where you just sort of go, do you know what, this just needs a good conversation now. And actually, I, I need to give my time here because there's somebody that to some degree has led their pathway to my door today. And there's definitely something they need to hear from me. And, and I just kind of need to prioritise this. So, so I think it just allows you to sort of make those decisions more smartly. I would agree with that completely. I know 10 years ago, I, I set out on the path away from the corporate world to what I'm doing now. And I spent some time thinking about my purpose because it's something I'd struggled with and never really got my head around. So it's unusual to hear somebody else. I've, I've asked many people this over the years and not many people have been able to as lucidly as you just did articulate theirs. For me, mine is to help people achieve more than they thought themselves capable of. And that on guides like you say, guides everything I've done. It got, you know, got me through all the self-doubt and when the debts were high and I was changing career and moving down to what I do today, that really kept me going along that. So it's... I think it's important to note, Anthony, that these things don't come easily. They don't come easily. It took so much time to find that answer. It's not sort of like knit down to Starbucks, you know, with your book and pen in hand, uh, set yourself the task from 10 to 11. I should come up with this by then. It takes a lot of deep thought. And, uh, and then, you, you know, you start to form ideas and then you start to play with words and then you begin to sort of test and learn and refine as you go. And, and also not to be too fixed on it, except that it might change at times and, 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 it, and, it, and it does flow a little bit. But again, back to this idea, generally speaking, it's always heading in some sort of direction. Uh, and that direction is naturally aligned with making you feel congruent as a person. And when you feel that congruency and it naturally feels right and you're feeling happy and aligned with everything that you're doing in your life, then you'll know that you're broadly on the right track. 
I echo something I heard Matthew McConaughey talk about on uh, on the High Performance Podcast with my friend Damien Hughes. I don't know if you've listened to that one. Um, he was talking about trying to be the better version of himself five years down the line, but it's never a goal that he could ever achieve because when he gets to that, he wants to be better five years. Down. So he's never going to achieve this goal, but he's always just on that journey of becoming a better version of himself. Well, I guess it sort of brings together sort of the whole neuroplasticity kind of space, doesn't it? And, and metacognition, you know, how we continue to allow our brains to have new experiences and, you know, we're always pushing our perimeters out in order that new neural pathways grow, you know, continue to form and, and make us better individuals fundamentally. And that it, it sort of consolidates down into, you know, growth mindset, I guess, doesn't it? It's sort of the way that's commonly uh, described, which is just really being open to things, sometimes following threads and, uh, and being open to where they might take you and, and, and not being too fixed in the way that you want to prescribe an outcome. And maybe I made some of those mistakes earlier in my, in my years is this by focusing too hard and then dealing with disappointment when something that, that you try to prescribe doesn't happen as you prescribed it. You then start to deal with individual disappointment against something which actually was probably a construct which was never meant to be, but you end up being disappointed. And it's kind of like, why am I doing this? You know, why am I doing this? Why don't I just kind of go with this journey? Wherever it takes me, it, it can only be an experience which will either serve me or not serve me. And that just simply becomes the outcome. And when you've got the outcome, you then just sort of, you just move on to the next bit, don't you? And, and I just found that that was a far easier way to live life. And I think once I began to understand that better, uh, my career also began to take off, ironically. So I think once you get to this space where you're just feeling a little bit more congruent, it's, it's amazing how um, things begin to open up for you in your life. Is there a year that you can attach to that? Was there particularly the year that you started to think differently in that way? And you talked about your career taking off. Was it after becoming managing director or before? Or? No, it was before that. I think there's two trigger events for me. And, um, you know, when we think about you know, what, what is it that makes somebody more introspective about life, more reflective, what, you know, what is it that makes those things happen? And what I've realized was is normally there's a couple of triggers. It's either a major age milestone, 21, 30, 40, 50, et cetera. And, and, you know, my advice to any employer is keep an eye on your top performers when they're coming up to major age milestones. Their thinking changes. And if they're a top performer with you, you need to make an intervention because they, they will go through a, what I call a fuzzy thinking phase. You know, when they're approaching their 30th, they, they get all that. I need to get my stuff together, you know, career, house, relationship, you know, life's running out. And I need urgently to know this. And it's like for those individuals, you really do need to create clarity that, that they can breathe out and go, don't worry, we got this. Here's where your career's going. You're OK. You know, just enjoy it. And, and for me, a trigger was actually coming in, into my 40s. And I think you, you get to this point where you sort of go, oh, my God, I'm reaching the halfway point. And, oh, you know, I, it's a sense of urgency to, again, just be sure about who I am and where I'm going and, you know, where am I in this whole thing? You become a bit more reflective. So that was a trigger for me was certainly turning 40. But before that, I, I had quite, to some degree, by accident, bought a, a business psychologist into Brother uh, when I'd got promoted to sales director and, and I'd asked them to help me run, you know, make the team better. And, and I got that sort of horrible moment at that point when they said, yeah, yeah, definitely we'll make the team better. But for that team to be better, you need to be better. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to do probably three months one-to-one -one first. And uh, I need to work with you. And then when we've got you in a really great place, then you're going to be equipped to lead. Uh, that was a guy called Stephen Sylvester, and uh, I, I would thoroughly encourage anybody to read his book, Detox Your Ego. And in there, you will actually find the anonymous story uh, of the CEO that he worked with. That's actually me. So I'll out myself uh, in, in that book if you buy it. it it's <laughs> me that he's describing. And I, I went through a bit of a journey there because I had never quite realized how powerful your embedded thoughts are. Uh, from your past experiences and how your brain uses those to ultimately make quick decisions and therefore how past experience influences the way you think so much. 
And we uncovered all this time. And my goodness me, I sort of have this unraveling of, wow, you know, almost I'm pre-programmed by my past experience to behave like this, to think like this. These are all my biases. This is my self-image. And none of it was very good, if, if I'm honest with you, when, on reflection. And it was a very, very tough period. Uh, you know, and, you, you know, I had to walk through that with him together. And I needed that sort of side-by-side help where he would ask me some really quite reflective questions about role of parents and all of these sorts of things. And you thought, wow. But when I came through that, what, what I emerged the other side, it, for me, it was a very, very galvanizing time because what I realized was it was time to let go of an awful lot of things. And, uh, and that was really about making positive choices about who I want to be, what my self-image should be, um, how now I should update some of the uh, thinking that I have. And actually, more importantly, how do you stop your bias bazooka going off from your past every time you're faced with something where your brain naturally wants to draw up a past experience, positive or negative, to influence the way you're about to think about the situation in the present? So having awareness of your bias bazooka and an ability to kind of pause and say, okay, I know what's gonna happen here. I've been presented with somebody, let's say, for example, you know, in your own life might look like a father figure, for example. So I know what's gonna go off here. I know this, this, I've just pulled a trigger here where my brain's gonna suddenly say, what I should do is sort of be attentive and I should be compliant and I should be non-questioning and all these sorts of things. So knowing that you, you then know how to manage it, for example. So, so working with that organizational psychologist, sort of looping back to where your question started was, was that that equipped me with a lot of skills, I think, to understand myself better and to have better introspection. And then when I reached 40, the sort of second milestone, I had a lot more competency and skill to understand what I was thinking and experiencing at that time to make better sense of it all and to sort of map my pathway through it um, in a very, very positive, constructive and, and um, contributory way. I love that term, bias bazooka. That's brilliant. That's a real, yeah, I love that. And I also you know, talked about those milestones and I can completely resonate with that. For me, it was about the age of 40. Um, my mother had just died and then I very unexpectedly ended up finding myself divorced, didn't, didn't see that coming. And that really sparked that period of introspection for me. And then thinking at the same time, A, I want to be a better person. What's sort of gone wrong and, and what's my role in all of that? Um, and then thinking about, I'm not really satisfied with my career. I was head of comms. I want to do something that's more fulfilling. And I'd always wanted to do something more fulfilling, but never really settled on what that was. So taking that, I remember, you know, I was already pretty broke anyway, but I took three months out to really think about and just reflect on who am I, what do I want, what's my purpose, and what are the next 20 or 30 years going to look like for me personally and professionally. Um, but yeah, you're right, it takes a long time and a lot of self-introspection. You know, I didn't, I perhaps like yourself, I didn't like what I'd saw sometimes. So I worked quite hard to improve that aspect of it. Um, and that's a continuous journey. But I really like that, what you said about that bias bazooka. So one thing I'll say then that's really, really important is, is if, if you've experienced that and we've experienced that and, and that's a thing when people are transitioning through these milestones or life impacting experiences, the loss of a loved one, somebody who's undertaking, you know, having serious health conditions, you have got to be so aware of that in your organisation. And you have got to have the skills to to guide someone through that. And I, I can recall having that same challenge at work once where I had a real high performer, senior in the business, really struggling with turning 50, really struggling. Uh, we've seen a short, sorry, huge dip in performance, the sort of a vac vacancy and was like, what's going on? And it, I then kind of connected the dots and, you know, I, I sat for hours with this individual talking through some of these things of, how to better define your purpose, you know, why you're here. And for me, you've got to be able to have that skill. And uh, a while ago, I started to think about a, a leadership model I, I called the correlative leader, Anthony. So I called it that because all the fancy words relating to leadership, they've already been taken, haven't they? There's about 5 million books on the subject. I thought, oh God, 
how can I make this work? And I thought, well, all these things correlate with each other. So I just called it the correlative leader just so I could sort of have a place to a placeholder. And what I, I meant by that was, was these four pillars. One was physical leadership, one was emotional leadership, one was digital leadership, and one was spiritual leadership. So, um, you know, the physical is about, you know, not only taking care of self, but designing environments where, for example, you know, you understand neuroscience, you know, understand how to generate dopamine, serotonin, all of these things that make people happy in a workplace. So not only self, you know, your physical health, but, but actually the, the spaces you design, um, you know, obviously emotional, easy to understand, digital, uh, you know, for nowadays, anyone leading a business has got to have a strong digital base about their knowledge. So, uh, you know, don't be on a board and be the D and, you know, if you don't have D, C-suite needs more D, more digital skills fundamentally. So, so be that person in the room that gets digital. And the, the most challenging of those is the spiritual. And whenever I stand on a stage and I talk about this to other groups of, uh, let's call it C-suite leaders or, or, or people in senior positions, that's the point when everyone sits back in their chair or sits on their hands or takes a quick it's difficult. I know it's difficult, but but what I mean by that is is these bigger life discussions. These bigger life discussions where you've got somebody at work that is genuinely struggling struggling because they're caring for a parent with dementia. It's the most difficult thing. You know, you ultimately you you see your parents die twice. It's terrible. I've been through it myself uh, in in our own family. It's horrific. And you go through this terrible journey of trying to cope with that. And you have got to have an emotional sensitivity to that topic. And you've got to be able to kind of sit with somebody on a really human level and, and to really be compassionate in that moment. That's kind of a, a learned skill. You can do a lot of that. But imagine then if you're then having that conversation of, I don't know who I am. Yes. Individual turning 50 or, or as you raised a moment ago, I don't know who I am. So that turns up at your desk and they're one of your top performers. Can you have that conversation to help guide them to a future to allow them to have more clarity and to feel more centered and to feel at peace again? That is the sort of discussion that I land in the sort of spiritual box, Anthony, because it's it's big. You know, it can go all over the place, that discussion. Uh, it really can. Uh, but you must have the tools to have that discussion, in my opinion. So that's what I mean by the, the spiritual pillar in that, that correlative leadership model. I think that's really insightful because, it, as you said, we all go through those milestones, whether they are age-related, whether they are life events, whether that's a sick parent or, or something else, or a, you know, a divorce or whatever it might be. And I think that comes back to what we talked about just off before we started recording, which is around this psychological contract, doesn't it? And that sort of needs ties in there. And I think it makes it really uncomfortable for a lot of leaders to think about the spiritual bit because maybe they haven't done some of that self-work. Would your advice then to be to someone who either feels very uncomfortable about having that because they haven't done that work or they're just not who they are and they don't like that, to say to give that result to give an external resource in the in the form of a you know a Stephen Sylvester or somebody to help your high performer have those conversations even if it's not with you. Yeah, I've, with one hundred percent, I would say that uh, it's very difficult, Anthony, isn't it? If I sort of said, okay, you know, buy this book and then I talk about correlative leadership and and you just need to be be a bit more spiritual. That is a very big question to ask of somebody. Uh, you know, these, the, that journey in itself is a decision you must make and, and you've got to wait for that trigger and you may never get it. You may never get it. You may actually just go, all I want to do is work on my competency at work, do a good job, um, you know, work on my technical competency and that's it. And, and, and that conversation, I can't have it. It's too big for me. I don't, you know, I don't even want to have it because I don't want to even have it with myself. Now, I guess what, what we're interested in when we lead businesses, I'm very interested in, I've got this thing called a strategy, of course, and, and successful strategies rely on you know, execution and execution relies on you know, great processes, great systems and great people. So look, you, you can buy systems, you can design processes, but both of those things need people to either design them or run them fundamentally. So then you come to the people bit. And, 
you've got to say, well, actually, if you want a high performing team, if you want a team with a strong psychological contract that delivers you the discretionary effort that you need uh, as an employer to execute brilliantly against that strategy, then for sure, part of that is you need to have ways to allow the people to do their best work. We're, in, we're investors in People Platinum Employer. We're one of the first in the country to get it. We've had it twice. And we also won the Investors in People Most Platinum Employer of all the Platinum Employers, which, you know, is sort of like the best of the best award, I guess, right? Um, but I want, to, uh, I want to frame that. I didn't just say that because I'm, I'm trying to have a humble brag. It's not about that. Because what then people say to you is, wow, you must be perfect. And I'll tell you now, we're not. Uh, and I had this, this sort of moment one day of clarity, and, and it was simply this. I'll just repeat the words, uh, which is, all companies are dysfunctional. Successful companies simply manage their dysfunction more successfully. So what I mean by that, by nature of the fact you have human beings in your organization, you know, dysfunction is a byproduct of human beings, right? Yeah. So you're always going to have some dysfunction by nature of the fact you're trying to get human beings working together successfully. So the only way you can make that more successful, you'll never make it perfect, in my opinion, because life gets in the way. You don't know people's embedded thoughts, how they think. You know, it's very, very difficult to get that peak, peak, peak performance, perhaps only in very, very consolidated teams. For example, an Olympic team going for a specific event, you can really work with two or three people. When, when you're trying to do that with hundreds of people, it's really, really difficult. So all you can do is broadly manage that dysfunction as best as you can to get the best out of, in broadly speaking, most of the people. So you end up with that bell curve of performance of always having outliers, which is okay. It's totally okay to have that. Um, but broadly speaking, to have an environment where most people can do their best work most of the time, then you have a fighting chance of really executing well against your strategy. And, you know, if we're in business, we're all in it for delivering the strategy. So you deliver the strategy, we get the great outcomes that we need, whether it be financial or whether for your people or your long-term sustainability or the environment, whatever that might be. So it all comes back to the people, always. And if you can give somebody who's vital to delivery of that uh, execution strategy um, a lift or resources or help when they need it the most, you'll get even more discretionary effort in your future. And that comes down to this, you know, there's a psychological contract you, we mentioned and I know the other one, the term is psychological safety that's been getting a lot of airtime quite rightly um, over the last few years. I know I'm working with a, an organisation at the minute and one of the things that come out is that they've got a really, uh, um, a really are they engaged? They're in a, a workforce that's doing a lot of great work or trying to do a lot of great work, but there isn't a lot of psychological safety and that's starting to show. And, you know, certainly going through the pandemic where everyone's been asked to do so much more. And we talked before we came on about Zoom calls and the effect of being on Zoom all day. Uh, and it's now starting to show where they've put so much effort in over the last 18 months that now it, the, the, it's starting to fray a bit at the seams. How important then is, is, is psychological safety and what does that mean to you? Very, very important. I, I think the sort of the psychological contract that exists is, is really all about kind of, look, uh, do we have each other's backs? You know, am I accepted and respected uh, without consequence? Uh, am I listened to and heard? Is my identity something in this organisation? You know, uh, so, so am I a person here or am I a resource here? You know, I'm an employee or a colleague. It, it, it's about really creating that environment where actually, look, you know, we identify everybody in our place as a colleague, who, regardless of what you do. You know, we're all in this, we're trying to create that environment where, you know, we're all in this together. And therefore, um, your behavior as a leader and then what you accept and what you don't accept, remembering that, you know, culture really is a byproduct of the, of the lowest levels of behavior that you're prepared to accept. So if you accept poor behavior and you look the other way, then that is the minimum, you know, that creates the standard in your organization, despite what your corporate words might say or your, or your nice away day words. So it's all about how you live it right every day and, and how you as a person live it and, and show people. Part of that 
Uh, there are times, you know, when when I've had to show vulnerability and, you know, but certainly in the early days of the pandemic, you know, I was working incredibly long hours, you have huge days on teams and stuff. And um, you, often you're in a frazzled state, you know, where you kind of, your, your cognition sort of, your Duracell batteries have just run out and you're the bunny and everyone's looking at you and, you know, you've got to keep playing. And you, you really, really, um, you know, the times, I th- you know, when we were reorganizing the business, and I was having to make big announcements and all this sort of stuff, you know, where, where even I was feeling choked on some of the calls, you know, because some of these were really, really big things. And I know they were life impacting for some of the people that, that I work around. And when you understand and you, until you've ever been in the seat of, of a managing director, responsible for the lives of these people, their, their hopes, their dreams, their careers, because they come to your place to, to do something with their life, either to you know feel like they're improving and your, your workplace gives them that ability to do that, or to change their identity, or to create you know the financial resources that they need to do something away from your workplace. You bear that responsibility in the every t- everyday decisions that you make. And for me, I feel constantly connected to that. I feel the weight of the 150 or so families that, that I'm responsible for at my place, well, 151 if I include my own, um, I, I feel that weight of responsibility all the time. So sometimes when you have to make decisions which you know are difficult, then I, I just don't think you're human if, if, if you don't show people the weight of that decision on you. And, and I re- can recall one uh, particular Teams meeting that we had with all staff when I had to talk about some reorganisation and that sort of choking up moment. I, I had 100 emails within five minutes of that call ending from my colleagues hundred emails and literally it was like it was unbelievable and it was like we're here for you um you know we know the pressure that you're under and um you know we trust you and you know we can see the weight of that but but don't worry we're all going to be okay we're all behind this and you know that to me was sort of it was so kind of like it was quite emotional um actually you know for that morning I just thought how lucky am I you know I'm lucky but that was only triggered by showing your own vulnerability. And part of that psychological safety and that contract is to say, look, I'm not perfect. And there are times when I'm under load and and I'm only human. I'm not this sort of super person that runs this organization, which, which just literally just keeps going all the time. I ebb and flow too sometimes. And sometimes when these big moments happen and it involves you particularly, it means something to me. Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's a shame, isn't it? We just still see so often, I hear about and see so often, leaders that aren't like that, that, that seem to have this mental image that actually they've got to you know, be strict and tough and, and not show any vulnerability and, and allow some of the behaviours that we've talked about. Often I'm, like, you know, I'm brought into companies, can you help us with our culture, blah, blah, blah. And they want me to push the culture up. And I keep trying to say, no, the culture's got to come from the top down. It's not going to work. You can't change the culture of middle management in, in isolation from senior management or, or from another pocket of the organisation. It's got to begin at the top and come down. Oh, absolutely. You, creating initiatives sometimes is a real big problem, isn't it? Is, mm. is somebody says, uh, look, we've had a piece of feedback from a survey. It's not good. Bring somebody in, fix it. And it's kind of like, well, well, actually, part of the problem here is actually what's happening at the top. So it's kind of that's what really needs to be fixed. And then we might get some results. But uh, these things take so much time. It took me years to to really kind of move us on. I joined Brother in 1994 as a a fax salesman. and, And I worked for 19 years in the environment where I was working for somebody else. And I had five or six bosses during my tenure some better than most um, and I, I realize what it's also like to work for a for a leader that's just driving financial results and, and not really thinking about people and I, I know what that feels like and when I got into the seat uh, in 2013 it was like well how do I how do I move us now to this new place that I want which is a, a little bit different than what we've been we absolutely are still results orientated. We have to be results orientated. Still got to deliver things. Yes, you're still a commercial operation, aren't you? Output, quarters, annualized, all of this sort of stuff. The stick shift is is when you have to switch from saying it's all about the financials 
to it's all about the people. Because there is a transitionary moment in that where you might have some financial impact to that decision. And what I mean by that is you might need to let go of some people that are driving behavior in the business, which is not uh, uh, compliant with a people-based future. And that in itself can take some time. So not everything's like fixable by bringing a consultant in uh, with short periods. A consultant will probably tell you what needs to be fixed and can help you in that journey. But I think sometimes uh, in, in some of the leaders that I've heard that may have been dealing with this problem, their expectation is, I want it fixed by, you know, you, you're in October, you know, you know, I want it fixed by the new year because we want to do this and do that. And I want I want everyone together in a room and I want everyone to look like we, we, we're together again. And it's like, this is a long journey that you have to start, but you have to agree to the journey first. Once you agree that journey, you have to agree there may be consequences within that journey. And you have to agree that fundamentally along the way that you are prepared to accept them. And when you accept them, you can then begin the reconfiguration process. And people don't begin to believe this stuff. They still see it as an initiative until such time that they experience the new. And when they begin to experience the new and it becomes that next normal, uh, are we, I've experienced something and now I've experienced it again and they have a repeated experience, only then does it then become, start to become the normal. And you get that cultural shift. And so my, my advice is always is, is whenever you're trying to do this big stuff, um, set yourself realistic, you know, timelines for it. It's never going to happen in quarters. For me, it takes years to start building great cultures. And, and it really starts with your leadership team. And you get that leadership team working and you, you working and the leadership team working and the middle management working, you, you'll, you'll be surprised at where you can get there. But there's no quick fix, in my opinion. No, sure. And the payoff commercially, when, when people start to, to do that, to see that change, do you, is that always mirrored commercially as well? Yeah, I, I think that's the question I get asked most often is, is you know, again, you're doing a big talk and you know, the hand goes up at the back of the room and says, look, you know, it's all a bit soft. We're all about the numbers. Tell me the ROI on, on people management and culture. And it's like, why would we actually do it? And it just seems a bit of a waste of time and energy. And it's kind of like, OK, yeah, fine. Uh, you know, when you when, watch your staff turn over, uh, how, how easy it, is it for you to recruit people and retain people? Um, because my, my recruitment bill uh, came down something like 70% once we kind of got things in and really working. Yeah, recruitment, 70% lower. We didn't need, we actually had a, a queue of people to some degree wanting to join us, Anthony. So we'd created a, a halo around the, the company and the workplace. We're somewhere where people want aspire to work. And we do not make the sexiest of products. We make computer printers and labeling devices and identity devices. Kind of, No one wakes up in the morning um, passionate about that necessarily, but they are passionate about being in a great culture, working with people that they love, feeling like they've got, they're moving on, that they're, you know, they're, they're growing as individuals, growing their you know, economic base, all of these things. And we can do that. We provide that. So take the label away of what you do and, and then reinstall actually how do we do it. And then I think you begin to sort of create that powerful flywheel. So for us, that's one of the sort of the return on investment based um, things that you can point to. Sickness absence days, ours are lower than national averages. Staff turnover, lower than national averages. My average length of service across 151 people is 13.5 years, Anthony. Why? Because people kind of feel they're in a place where uh, they, they can do their best work. Do we lose people? Of course we do, because sometimes your uh, achievement escalator is not running fast enough to keep pace with somebody who's very achievement orientated that's wanting bang, 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 bang. I'm trying to be a CEO by 29. It's like, okay, I can take you so far up that. We'll take you to there. But when you get there, you're going to probably need to jump off and do that somewhere else. But I'm totally cool with the idea that, that you just use us as part of that process. 
And and in our place, we 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 kind of think of the world just really as travelators and escalators. We've got a load of good people in our place that actually, do you know what? They don't. They're not aspiring to be the next CEO of Microsoft, but they do want to come up, do a great job, uh, go home at night, and then switch off from work completely. And they're not very career orientated. For example. My longest serving employer, 41 years, was in the same job for 41 years in our warehouse. But that's what they wanted. Fabulous individual, super reliable, hardly ever had a day off sick, and for 41 years turned up and made my operation there work brilliantly. You know, that's an escalator. Uh, sorry, a travelator, I beg your pardon, uh, individual. Reward them, value them. They're already moving you along. There's motion there. But, you know, really appreciate that individual and what they do for you. And then appreciate there's people who want to be on the escalator. They want this momentum. They constantly want salary improvements, job title changes, want to be a manager, want to run a team, all this sort of stuff. So you're constantly managing that, uh, those two different things. The most important thing is an escalator and travelator both move. There's always movement. And that's why we put great emphasis on learning, development and growth. It's not acceptable for us to be standing still. So you can still be uh, on the travelator coming and just doing a nine to five job really, really well without any great desires to be the next biggest, greatest of anything. But we do require you to constantly improve your skills, uh, do some community engagement, which we think grows you as an individual and contribute to the organization positively. So, so for us, momentum is, is very, very important uh, in order that our culture continues to grow. I want to sort of talk a little bit about mental health, if we can, because I know, um, you know, we've seen an escalation in, in poor mental health because of the pandemic. Mental health levels were already, poor mental health levels were already fairly high anyway. Um, I've been, I've done an awful lot of work with companies right away around the world in the last 18 months on this topic. You yourself have been a, a big champion behind mental health and Tell me about all the work you've done as an organisation with that. I think you, you're a mental health first aider yourself. Yes, that's right. Um, we adopted the sort of the mental health first aider model uh, a couple of years back. And uh, we put the message out to the business to say, look, we're, we're considering to do this. And normally your ratio of mental health first aiders to population is normally about one to 100. And uh, I've got 151 people. 50 people stepped forward to be trained as a mental health first aider. Wow. <laughs> okay. Like 50 people stepped forward and said, I'd quite like to do that training. And we were blown away by that. We were like, okay, right, wow, wonder why that is. So what we decided instead to do was we, we, we had a look across the organization and said, okay, we need to look at this and start thinking about organizational areas as one sort of layer. Uh, perhaps you could look at that sort of um, horizontally. And then vertically, we also need to look at age groups because different age groups have got differing mental health requirements potentially. So for example, people in their 50s and 60s will be dealing with grief an awful lot more than perhaps people in their 20s. And menopause as well, which is an issue. And menopause, you know, yeah. for females anytime in sort of late 30s onwards, menopause. So we then needed to look at the balance of men and women. So equally, you know, a, a female would need to be somebody that might be dealing with the consequence of menopause because they understand it. Equally, some men of a certain age might only want to talk to another male of a certain age. Equally, young people who've got a very different lived experience to somebody in their 40s or 50s might want to have a chat with somebody their own age. So what we did is we, we actually put together um, uh, about a dozen people based upon that profile of age, gender, and where they sit in the organization. And we, we, we sent them away and got them, you know, uh, fully equipped to be mental health first aiders. And for me, this was ever so important. And I thought, well, two things. Well, firstly, I'd really like to understand what they're learning. Because I think if you equip yourself with that, you can understand what it is they're delivering in your workplace for those individuals. So I, I, I thought, I'd like to understand that. But I also felt that, that it would be a very big signal to everybody in the organization of how seriously I was treating the subject matter. I'll go do it myself. And I went somewhere else to do it. Not I didn't do it. Our people were trained in one room by one trainer. I went somewhere else. Again, I didn't want to be that person in the room. where Yes, because you're the boss. Better not speak up or do this or do the other. It's surprising how 
your shadow can change sometimes a room. Even with all the great work you've done around culture, Phil, you're aware of that. Yeah, the, I, I think there was still an, uh, this sort of mental health thing, this tabooism, I don't know, um, that all the other things are going well. But I just, I always just have the sensitivity to know that I've got a shadow. I have got a shadow. When I turn up into any room, something changes. Despite how hard you work uh, to, to, for that not to happen, something still changes. So I went away to do that. And it was very helpful for me because I, I learned the whole kind of... Um, sphere of all you know mental health conditions from you know self-harming you know right the way through to sort of deep depression schizophrenia and it helped me to understand you know, mental health has been a big issue in my life because my grandmother was uh, you know suffered from schizophrenia and I grew up around my, my grandmother uh, you know thinking there was a, a man in her loft trying to kill her and as a young person I found that very difficult to try and understand but as I look back and I got equipped with all this knowledge I just thought my god my grandmother was probably the bravest person I've ever met that she lived her life in, you know, living in a flat on her own, thinking somebody was stalking her. Yet she still greeted me when her grandson came to visit, knowing that and ignoring it to give me that time and space. I thought, you know, wow, you'd had all of this stuff popping off in your brain, and and you beginning to make a lot of sense about things. So by by doing that, it equipped me with a lot of knowledge, which actually helped with my own uh, life, but also it helps me to also help others in my organization, my own senior leadership team, to be around when the other mental health first aiders are having, you know, get togethers, uh, but also to make interventions if I need to in a, in a structured way uh, where we know that that structure is repeatable, even if I'm not there, somebody else can pick things up for me or somebody could pick me up if, um, if, if needed. I'm just looking at time. I can't believe how much time has flown already. I think we've been talking for about 45, 50 minutes. And I feel like I could just continue this conversation for another half an hour, an hour, but we don't sadly have the time for that. But Bill, I wanted to thank you so much for your time today. I think it's been absolutely invaluable. I'd written a bunch of questions to, uh, as you would always would, to sort of start off and inform the conversation, but it's just flown in... Um, and flowed in in areas that I wasn't quite anticipating, but have been really, really useful. And I have no doubt that anyone listening to this, certainly in any kind of leadership position, is going to take tremendous value from your insight and what you've kindly shared with us today. So I'd like to just really appreciate, uh, say thank you for your time, your honesty, and, and you talked about your vulnerability in sharing what you've shared. Anthony, thank you so much. And I'd encourage anybody you know, to, to, to lead well, it always starts with yourself. And to lead others, lead yourself well. When you lead yourself well, you will create and you have a greater understanding of who you are. You will, as a byproduct, develop a greater understanding of others. And that can only ever be a great thing in your personal or professional life. And that is a brilliant piece of advice to, to finish on. Thanks, Phil, again. Really appreciate it and uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Anthony. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Phil. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for a few years now. We've spoken on stage together at a couple of events. And so I was really keen to get him on the show. I think there are few leaders within the UK that are perhaps as thoughtful and as empathetic and people-orientated as Phil is. And he's really shown... I think Brother in the UK are a model for how businesses and big businesses in particular can embrace very much a people-centered approach and still make money and still be very profitable and leaders in their field. The two do go hand in hand. What's required is a mindset shift. And that's why I was really keen to get him on the show. In terms of takeaways from that, uh, you'll have your own, I'm sure. A couple of things that really stood out for me, uh, well, three or four actually were, knowing your strengths and vulnerabilities. And he made that point right at the outset. That self-awareness piece is absolutely essential. And the fact that my second point was working hard to understand who you are and what you stand for, your mission, your vision, and your values. And to appreciate that, that it's not a quick thing. That does take time. It takes effort and it takes introspection. And you might need the help of somebody else, whether that's a coach, a thinking partner, uh, a counsellor, whatever you want to, to use or call it, to really help you go to places and think about things that you might ordinarily avoid because they're a little bit uncomfortable. 
The third thing that really struck me was that how powerful our embedded thoughts are based on our past experiences. And we all view the world through the lens of our past experiences. And actually, when we start to understand those and appreciate those and be mindful and aware of them, then we can start to make different choices and more positive choices. As he talks about stopping your bias bazooka going off, which I really enjoyed that term. And then the fourth point was just the difference that, you know, having travelators and escalators and that every business needs people that are happy to be on either of them. And some people are happy to be on the travelator and they will just go through their career doing their job, doing it well, hopefully. And, and that's fine. And that's OK. Um, but also there are people who want to go on the escalator and some of them can fit with the time scale of the organisation. And some may need to get off because that doesn't fit. But understanding that a business needs people on both travelators and escalators. And then lastly, just to sort of wrap all, all of that was that point, that really eloquent quote he said where, all companies are dysfunctional, but successful companies manage their dysfunction more successfully. And I think that's a great quote because it allows us to be a bit kinder to ourselves, realize that we're never going to get things absolutely perfect and, and that's okay. But how we doesn't stop us successfully managing that dysfunction and reducing that dysfunction. And then the other side of that is increased profitability and a much happier and engaged workforce. So I hope you really enjoyed that conversation with Phil. I, for one, will be going back and listening to that two or three more times. I think there's a lot of gold in there. And I'll look forward to the next episode. And hopefully you can join me on that one too. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. It only takes a moment, but it makes a massive difference to the visibility of the show and how many people we can reach. You know, our mission is to help people develop the mental fitness so that they can achieve more than they thought themselves capable of. So it'd be great if you could do that. A big thanks to Charlotte Foster Podcast for her hard work on producing the show. You can connect with her on LinkedIn. And the music for show is Where to Run by Strength to Last, created by the musical talents of Adrian Walther, a Canadian living in Nashville. Check out his music on Spotify and YouTube Music.